discussing back to basics. It's never too too often or uh, we never have the occasion to discuss often enough, I should say, back to basics with regard to cyber hygiene and a variety of different issues that uh, we've often overlooked when we think about cybersecurity issues. So I'm Sean Costigan. Uh, I'm your host of the Cybersecurity Summit webinar series and a professor at the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies. And on behalf of the summit, our special thanks to the Enterprise Knowledge Partners who helped conceive of today's important discussion. Thanks to Enterprise Knowledge Partners who helped conceive of this discussion. So let's meet our, our presenters, our speakers, really, because we're going to try and have a good discussion all together. So uh, joining me for today's discussion is Mary France uh, and Chris Brinkworth of Enterprise Knowledge Partners. Mary is the founding partner of EKP. She has over 25, experience, 25 years of experience in technology and cybersecurity. She's been a CTO, a CIO, and a CISO. She has accumulated extensive international experience and has managed the technical design and build of many global systems. She's a hands-on industry expert, court vetted in cybersecurity, data breach, cloud-based service models, enterprise architecture, breach remediation, and cyber forensics. She's led advanced ethical hacking teams, those red teams, She's uh, done security assessments and has managed multiple cyber incident response investigations across the globe. She's also a plaintiff's technical expert in the Equifax, Marriott, Yahoo, Facebook, and many other breaches and cyber incidents. She graduated from Northern Illinois University with a quadruple major, a BA in math, statistics, a BA in foreign language, Spanish, French, a BS in international relations, and a BS in information uh, systems and operations management. She then went on to receive an MBA from the University of Chicago with an emphasis in international business and finance and a master's in computer science from Georgia Tech. She um, has multiple various active and non-active certifications. And for fun, she mentors students and is an avid English eventer and equestrian. Along with Mary today is Chris Brinkworth. Chris is, this is a, he's a recovering CTO and CEO and a partner at EKP. So over 20 years experience in cyber forensics, internal investigations and electronic discovery for Fortune 500 companies. It's a national expert in security forensics analysis, malware detection, memory analysis, packet analysis, mobile forensics, password hacking, virtual systems, deleted data recovery and darknet and identity theft investigations. So over, he's testified in over 100 cyber and digital forensic investigations, including many Fortune 100 companies. It's worked for institutions such as Defer Lab, uh, worked for memory and malware analysis in support of incident response operations. Other experience includes hard disk recovery, social media forensics, cloud forensics, and database recovery. So he has design and operations experience in multiple large electronic discovery platforms. He's a past member of the High Technology Crime Investigation Association and working member of the Electronic Discovery Resource Model Association. He has multiple active and non-active certifications in security, mobile device analysis, telecom and telemetric analysis, and digital forensics. He holds a bachelor's degree in environmental science with an emphasis in hydro hydrologic impact modeling and holds several industry certifications in technology and forensics. So with that, uh, the very rich backgrounds, we're gonna have a great discussion. So Mary, I'm gonna hand it over to you at this moment since I believe you have a presentation that you'd like to kick off with and uh, before we get to our discussion. So please, thank you. Welcome both, both of you. All right, so uh, again, we're gonna be talking about back to the basics. 
this is a topic that, uh, as Sean mentioned, you can't really mention, you can't really restate or emphasize too much, but we're going to be talking about it from a different perspective. We're going to be talking about it, what it looks like when companies did not implement the basics after a breach is discovered and we start cyber investigations, what it looks like. Okay, so Sean already went through a little bit about uh, myself and Chris. So let me just tell you point blank, and I think Chris can concur. There is absolutely nothing more humbling than having been found to ignore alerts and scans or not even perform them, find endpoints you didn't lock down, allowed or ignored transgressions, by your executives, your software engineers, or third parties, because you wanted to get the product out the door. And then also there's plenty of emails, chats, text messages, Slack, Teams messages about comments from individuals going back and forth about breaking the rules, their own knowledge of core security and compliance. And this happens now on the front page of a newspaper after a breach. So here's what we normally find. The company discovers the tip of the iceberg, but in the cyber investigation, we see the whole thing. And it's rarely pretty after a breach is discovered. So even the most basic attacks that we deal with from the most advanced attacks from nation states, they almost always walked through a front door. And the other thing is, is that we find after the fact that cyber resiliency as well as system efficiency actually go hand in hand. So when, when we're dealing with all these tools, monitoring and looking back and forth, that is actually used by your department, by your marketers, your website people, everything to try and figure out what's working, what isn't working. Uh, and they often show, they're, they're often used simultaneously with your security tools, and they show a lot of times the uh, impact uh, of, uh, of a potential compromise, the attempt of a compromise, or the existence of a compromise, and yet we don't put those together. So we're all on the same page here, okay? You know, in every day, every hour of the day, there is a report of a new breach. We're kind of getting numb to it. There was three on the, uh, that hit the front end of Google News yesterday, you know, all this stuff. Now, when we talk about what we see after the breach, what they're seeing is maybe the end result of a ransomware attack. When you actually see the, the uh, message come up on the screen saying, hey, you've just been attacked and now you have to send so much money to Bitcoin uh, or, you know, to our Bitcoin wallet, et cetera. What happened before that is exasperating for us as cyber experts when we come in and we actually do the cyber investigation because the signs were there. They were not just there. Sometimes they were blinking red right in front of people and they chose to ignore it either because they became numb to it or because they had developed really, really bad habits. And a lot of these bad habits focus on ignoring basic cybersecurity hygiene. So what happens after a breach? First of all, and we mean this wholeheartedly, you go through all stages of grief, okay? You start with denial. Well, it wasn't really that bad. It's only this one machine. It's not that big of a deal, okay? And then they go into anger. 
how dare someone do this to us or how dare someone forget to patch this machine. And then you go through bargaining and the company and the lawyers go through and they go, you know, could that data really have been used? It's not that big of a deal. There's no financial impact. You know, why is everyone getting, uh, you know, in a term that I heard uh, recently on a global security breach, why is everyone getting their knickers in a twist? Okay. And then there's depression when it really sets in, when the discovery takes place and you realize what was out there. And then they really start to go, holy crap. <laughs> and then there's acceptance. Okay, we screwed up. We need to fix it. But here's the thing, everything looks that way in 2020 hindsight. So how do we miss it so often, okay? Um, after a breach, uh, we have been involved in organizations where it's clear that three to four years of political meetings, infighting, lack of budget, et cetera, prevented the replacement or securing of major critical resources. But after a breach, all that goes away and those critical resources get fixed or deprecated almost overnight. Some people do get fired once in a while, but more importantly is the board is now paying attention because now it affected the bottom line. It's no longer noise in the background and some CISO or compliance officer constantly complaining. The board is now saying, we're not putting up with this anymore. But you know what, prior to that, these issues rarely got raised to the board even though they were known by the corporation. And then there's lots of audits. And amazingly enough that sometimes when you hit rock bottom, what comes back up is a much better product, a much better service, trained, knowledgeable, and effective employees in the space, more efficient operations. But to get there, the cost to the reputation of the company, the cost to have of not doing it is really an unnecessarily painful journey. And so that's why we're telling the stories from post-breach, not from knocking everybody on top of the head saying, why did you do this? Or why, why aren't you doing this? And everyone looking at me going, what's the purpose? I don't get it. You know, that's draconian. Why do we need strong passwords? Why do we need MFA right now? Um, and we have heard the term draconian quite a bit with some of the compliance requirements. But after the fact, it becomes really clear that if they had done even the basics, some of the stuff would never have happened. So what happened leading to discovering the breach? Budget investment did not prioritize security and compliance. Matter of fact, a lot of times the security team is the smallest team in the company. There's never consistent enforcement. And these are quotes here. These are real quotes from the past two years we have heard from just the past two years. We have a policy. Here's SOC 2 auditor, here's our policy. They're not following it, but we checked the box. Okay, we passed the pen test, but we only gave the pen tester one of many IP addresses that should have been checked, that should have been validated, that should have been penned. And we knew that when we gave it to them because we wanted to make sure we passed the audit. And then a lot of people go, oh, we're in the cloud now. Really, I'm using all the cloud. I'm using all of Google or Amazon or Azure stuff. So what could happen, right? It's the cloud. It's not on-prem. The cloud has security. There's a lot of comments that we find in emails and everything about the security guys doing, uh, the software engineers and the marketers doing whatever they can to avoid 
or not follow security because what they did prevented them from having from doing their job or they weren't going to be able to get the job done they weren't going to be able to get this code fixed and sent up to production if they actually had to scan it and then this is a real quote this is a real quote from a cto this is a real quote also from someone who used to be at one of the largest organizations in the world that advertises security. Basically, if you don't take that local router in my office and open up every port, I'm just going to send all my software engineers down, down the street to the, um, to the uh, coffee shop and they'll just do their job anyways. Okay, that's a real quote. That real quote looks really bad after the breach is found. <laughs> so what also happens when the company is not secure is overall support costs are very, very high. They're pushing products and services and pushing stuff out there so fast and they're dealing with the aftermath and it's always harder and more expensive to fix something after it goes live. SIMs are put in because they everyone knows they have to do logging and monitoring, but they don't want to hear the alerts. We have actually been in situations where they have created queries to suppress the alerts because they're annoying. Also, there's lack of overall enforcement. And my personal one is, yes, everyone needs access to production to support the customer. So I want everyone to have near global admin access or, or near administrative access or, or system admin access because we need to support the customer, okay? Those are real quotes That's real, that really, really happened. And that all came out after the breach was discovered. Now, this isn't a, you know, one against the other, security and compliance against software engineering, against executives or marketing. Actually, the, the, when everyone works together and they listen to each other, so much more is done, so much more is done productively and efficiently. So in general, every compliance violation security incident started with a lack of basic security hygiene. It wasn't always the number one or only issue, but it was clearly a critical part of it. Every breach started with a basic user mistake. Every one that we have ever encountered in our 20 years. And that user mistake and the alerts, the messages, the warning messages were ignored or not followed. And it usually was a result of not uh, following policy, policy that was already written. And then the most successful long running breaches are caused by basic human error, not one individual human, but a habitual group of humans who simply became numb or got into a really bad habit. Please. Chris, your microphone's off. Chris, can you turn yours on, Mary? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. You know, we we've been touching on a lot of the negative themes that are sort of the hallmark commonalities between a lot of the breaches that we're involved with. But the one thing I also want to point out is we do have some clients that are very proactive, and what they've done is rather than being afraid of sort of the you know the proverbial boogeyman that they can't really prove or disprove is in their in their system. They've looked around and surveyed their own industry and looked at incidents that were affecting their competitors or affecting sort of complementary businesses to, to what they're doing, whether it's up or down their supply chain or distribution or whatever. 
and they've asked themselves internally, you know, can this affect us? What would happen if this affected us? What would we do? And then moving forward, what do we need to do to sort of stave off the barbarians at the gates? And those companies are the ones that you don't read about ever because they proactively have assumed the culture that they need to do something beforehand, knowing that if they don't, they will be just like their competitors that had a ransomware attack. And they quantified what does a day of no business look like from ransomware? Or what does a week of having a critical POS system down look like for our customers for a reputation? So what do we have to do and where do we need to look and how do we need to do it in order to make ourselves a little more less penetrable for threat actors? I want to add to that, you know, a ransomware and, and the topic is, is I want to add to that, that ransomware and the topic is incredibly, uh, 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 you know, prevalent right now. But a lot of the largest breaches never even get to the point of ransomware. They're, 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 we, we often go back and look at their entire, all their images, their logs, their systems, their everything. We put it all together and we correlate it. And basically it wasn't a result of just one breach. It was a result of multiple attackers going in there. And when companies go in and experience a ransomware attack, oftentimes that is the end game. It is not nearly the beginning. It's because some, uh, usually a script security group or a lower end group looking for a quick buck actually bought access into a company or they found something that had already been fully compromised and completely um, saturated. Uh, and that's why when we start looking at these breaches and you look underneath them, what was really happening over the years, they had actually been hit multiple times before and they ignored it. And like Chris said, if the companies that don't ignore those little alerts and they literally learn about their organization and they, they take knowledge that has been acquired over time, they stop it before it gets too bad and they improve their, their posture, they improve their practices over time. That's what we like to see and those are the ones that we don't get called in for, which is good. I'd rather be on the proactive side than the reactive side anyways. Okay, so we're gonna go into um, a couple of these uh, areas that are really, really basic. And we're gonna talk about what's happened after the breach and what the basic security best practice should have been. First of all, after breach findings, we almost always find a form of Mimikatz or a persistent LSAS running on a lot of the people who have access to critical services, which are mostly software engineers. And there's tons of memory scrapers running all over the place, particularly for help desk, uh, you name it. We find an overactive use of port 3390 or open RDP ports, hard-coded SSH certs, credentials, insecure network communications, particularly internal, where the, where the attacker easily traversed the network. And we also find endpoints with absolutely no VPN in use because they think that if they get into uh, the website that has, let's say, even a virtual desktop, that all of a sudden their traffic going into and out of there is secure. It is not. Um, we find uh, the majority of issues with local admin uh, devices. 
where they turn off antivirus or they turn off security monitoring even for a short period of time. And we're finding increasingly uh, large numbers of endpoints on mobile phones and mobile devices that are compromised due to original downloads that get into the root. Uh, and then they use that particular device with no MDM to connect to the corporate network and attacker simply jumps from one hop to the other. Okay. Root causes, too many local admins, too much unmanaged BYOD, especially after the pandemic. And that's really basic. Things that companies would never have allowed, they started allowing after the pandemic. Endpoints not centrally managed, monitored, or even registered. We actually uh, found uh, a message from a security analyst that wrote a query to prevent defender alerts from firing or from even showing up because they were annoying and they were coming in and he couldn't handle them. So he just wrote a query to suppress them. No enforced policy. So there's a lot of opportunity in endpoint management to deploy policy, to deploy exceptions of policy. So you have a limited group of people to, to manage. Uh, and then uh, no VPNs are allowed split tunnels. And then also, believe it or not, corporate network and devices, particularly after the pandemic, people use their corporate devices, their personal machine. And we had people getting into social media sites with uh, and downloading things that had been compromised, uh, using their corporate email account, not realizing it was tagging along into foreign uh, social media sites um, in areas that you just can't believe in doing very dangerous browsing getting their entire machine pretty much owned and then using that machine to log into the corporate network or to corporate resources. So basically there's the best practices, there's a ton of tools out there that are incredibly efficient, good, easy to deploy. And by the way, it comes with your cloud service provider. Also MDM tools are a dime a dozen these days. Use them, use them. Another one we find is access management. We haven't, and, and Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe we've ever found a breach that didn't include or start with harvested administrative accounts and memory scrapers that pretty much started from scripting and fileless malware. Um, do you know of any? I think it starts, it starts with, um how they're going to find the easiest way to get in and whether that's um, guessing an administrative password that was pretty simple or uh, someone with elevated privileges that was pretty simple or they're able to get in through a malconfigured um, web interface and then that's when they start injecting their whether it's the scrapers you know or, or sniffers that are basically monitoring traffic between um you know, an entry point for data like social security numbers or credit card numbers and where it's actually going. Um, so there's a series of ways they do it, but those are the low hanging fruit that um, kind of a middle tier threat actor is going to be able to exploit. And one of the things that you see as an immediate result is file configuration changes when they get in, no matter how they get in, they install Chrome and they use scripts running on your typical user creds directly from there that are never monitored or never caught. So 
what is this? First of all, what causes this? Well, we look back, there is an excessive number of elevated privilege accounts. We also find default accounts that are never changed, even though that tends to be like the the, the really, really low-level low, uh, low basic stuff. You get a device in there, you get a service in there, you, def you change the default admin-admin account, and be surprised how many of those are not caught because they're done in test, nobody revisits them, and they move them up into production. Uh, one of the things we also find are glaring red flag, particularly when it comes to logging to Active Directory, either locally or in the cloud, is non-interactive logins. So if my account or machine is actually compromised, I'm going to grab your token, your cookie, or follow your session directly up, and they show up in non-interactive logins. They do not show up in interactive logins because you just simply bypassed MFA. Okay? No separation of duties and functions. This is probably the most important is when you have a global admin, administrative or system admin using their username and password as their email for their email, for their web browsing, for to get into social media accounts, to support uh, websites, et cetera, as an end user. And they're using something that is all, that has higher levels of privileges for everyday use. So if I click, if I have, uh, if I have admin of privileges tied to my generic email account that I'm using every day, and I accidentally click on something or download it, you just gave an attacker the ability to traverse your network. We need separation of duties, separation of functions, and separation of accounts so that admin privileges are only used when admin privileges are needed. We also see that internally to the network, particularly in the cloud, once people get into their cloud environment, they turn off zero trust environments where MFA is not enabled to get into that jump box. MFA is not is no longer enabled to get into the firewall that you deployed into the cloud. Okay, we also find a lot of backdoors to systems built by software engineers and tests or basically non-production that allowed them to get in very easily to bypass all those extra things. And guess what? They didn't take them out when they put them in. We have found whole service buses created as a backdoor into the systems to enable ease of support and really, really quick CI/CD or continuous integration, continuous development, and they forget to turn them off when they move that into production. That's an open door. We see that a lot. So best practice, monitor all accounts, not just the ones in production, monitor all access points and keep the logs enforce your policies, systematically enforce your policies, and don't shut them off. Because if you're getting a lot of noise, that's a learning experience, okay? It's a learning experience to really dive down and figure out what truly is a false positive and what isn't a false positive. Uh, you know, when we look back historically, the alerts are astounding. I mean, the, the evidence that, a, that an attacker was in your system was right there in front of them. And because of the noise, and because of the annoyance, they simply ignored it or, again, wrote that query to suppress it. One thing, the one thing I'll add on access management is that a lot of the threat actors that we see are they're using the tools that are already on your devices and your systems against you. And so your best weapon is to use the same tools that you have available to you to detect that. So your event logs, your policies, all those things, 
are weapons that you can use that are already included in those systems because if you don't if you're not using those those threat actors will use something against you powershell um lsas you know whatever they will find that they use it because that's part of their playbook and it travels light because it's already there when they're getting in so that's 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 a nugget of wisdom is you use your tools against them or they'll use them against you Okay, so asset management, everyone's heard the term, you can't protect what you don't know you have, right? Well, you'd be surprised. And we see a ton of, of assets that people didn't even know they exist. Firewalls left out there that are old, uh, WAFs that are left out there built on old Apache that nobody ever updated. Uh, they forgot to deprecate them. We're, uh, we also see unpatched vulnerabilities especially on cloud web app servers and jump servers. Uh, whenever we look historically at these assets, we often see old rules still on, remote management agents not monitored, really old ones still sitting on the system that nobody cleaned off. And by the way, when they get a new system in and they, re and they restore all the files, they actually store the garbage on there because they're not filtering or cleaning them when they replace systems, okay? We see a ton of unauthorized assets, but these assets sit in areas that you don't consider part of your card, uh, your, your card data environment, your PHI environment, et cetera, but they're sitting out there, okay? And they are often the first and, and, and major attack victims of these threat actors when they get in because they know they can sit there unnoticed and just ping and recon the rest of your network, okay? Um, you know, they say that year 2022 to 2023 is supposed to be the year of the API. Um, we find, we have been finding this for years, that APIs, APIs have been redirected, malicious DLLs inserted, et cetera. The problem is, is they're never tested at the API level, okay? Um, large portions, you know, after the breach, we see ton of queries of databases, okay? dumped DMP files all over the place, and I'm talking all over the place, even on your antivirus servers, because they're using them as a jumping off point because nobody's monitoring the antivirus server because it's an antivirus server, <laughs> okay? Um, basically, uh, in almost every environment, we find that the threat actors, because assets in non-production are just not valued, uh, from a management standpoint, that they pretty much have owned the entire non-production environment before you start seeing things show up in production data. So causes, not scanning and monitoring everything. In test, leaving verbose error messages that tell a threat actor everything they need to know when they're trying to get into a system and forgetting to remove those when they go into production. Installing fake websites, imposter vendors. So um, engineers, marketers, et cetera. Oh, look, free software, let's put it down, but we don't need to scan it. Um, we also see um, software, and I'm not trying to pick on software engineers, but we've seen this a lot lately because of the speed to market, especially the remote work environment has led to people going out to all different locations that are actually publicly exposed to grab tools, to grab open source code, uh, to play with stuff, and they inadvertently leave 
hard-coded passwords in their code when they update them. They inadvertently copy their own code out there. If you really want to break in, doing recon on some of these large code sharing sites is is a is just it's it's manna from heaven for a threat actor. But also what we find is that they're not logging network traffic, which also leads to the fact of the APIs going in places where you don't think they should go. Okay. Uh, when they do look at logs, they only look at the logs they're supposed to look at. They don't look at the entire plethora of MFT logs and do the correlation. This isn't hard. Your tools do this automatically. Okay. This isn't difficult. If you're gonna if you're gonna start to monitor your systems, monitor all your systems, not just the ones you think the threat actors are gonna be like. You not just the ones you think they're gonna go after. And what I often explain, if you've got if you've got a mouse trying to get in your house during the winter, like a lot of us have here on the upper Midwest, rodents will do whatever. They're not only gonna try to get into the kitchen where your food is. They're gonna get in any hole in the house you can, and then they're gonna sit quiet. Because you didn't actually monitor your external area. You didn't even know the doors that you had, let alone the doors that were open. So get an enterprise approach. It's going to help you. It's going to help you with changes. It's going to decrease cost overall because you know your environment. You're going to know how much it costs. You're going to have less surprises. So it's not only good for security, it's good for the, for the total enterprise. And if anyone who has experienced Log4j knows, don't throw away what you learned because a lot of people didn't even know they had it running until they were notified by third parties and software vendors. Okay, network security segmentation. Now, some of these are basic after breach findings, but you'd be surprised how many rogue Wi-Fi hotspots we find in corporate environments. Uh, default community strings that most basic stuff, you know, to just take off, and then you've got port forwarding. But most importantly is hackers, uh, malicious hackers can reverse your network because once they get in, you have blind trust between your systems. So their ability to reverse the network is a lot simpler than most people understand. Really simple. Okay. And production open to non-production and DevOps moves from test into prod with no scanning. That happens every day with the speed to production. Okay, every day with the speed to production. Uh, and then you have publicly exposed code, which is, again, what is causing a lot of our API um, transgressions that are currently going on right now, because that's how they find what's going on. But these are really basic things, okay? You're supposed to have gateways in between uh, one area to another that's supposed to prevent easy traversal because that's the whole concept of cyber resilience. Yet when speed to production happens, you're done. I mean, they, they, they eliminate those barriers very, very quickly. Okay, logging and monitoring, this may seem basic, uh, but uh, again, when we go back, we find the ability to detect a compromise woefully inadequate, and that is a legal statement made repeatedly in some of the world's uh, largest data breaches. Completely misread flags because of looking at own one alert and not correlating those alerts. And in many cases, we've seen a total rat infestation. So people only look at card data environments, people at places where PHI, places where your production system are actually gathering 
uh, uh, PII from consumers, okay? They're not looking at these systems that access those systems and those things are completely infested. Uh, the other thing that we're seeing is web shells um, in particularly in web apps and, uh, and publicly facing web servers. In a couple of instances, matter of fact, on more than a couple of instances, the web shells were actually placed on areas where, where employees were logging in to update their benefits because they were single sign-on, they were grabbing it there, that's it, game over. And they were able to go from there and jump directly into the entire corporate network on web servers and nobody was scanning those web servers nothing was on that web server if even the slightest avam had been on some of those web servers and they were being logged and monitored the attackers that put those web shows on there would have never been able to escalate and install the rats and then again i mentioned this before compromise av or uh, antivirus or anti uh, malware servers so basically if you're going to log and monitor, you can put in a SIM, put everything in there, production, non-production, all your systems. Because those threat actors are like mice. They look for any open hole, and then they just move through the network. Chris, do you have anything to add for that? Because I know that we've been through these a lot. <laughs> well, I was going to save the big comments for, I mean, a lot of the issues of logging and monitoring, actually, I share those with file integrity monitoring, which you're about to jump into. But since we're here, um, the big thing is baseline. So the big question is, how do I know there's a problem? What am I, how do I know what to look at? How do I know what to identify? I would recommend that when you adopt this new policy of logging and monitoring or trying to like spruce it up or whatever, you create a baseline so you know what a normal day looks like, assuming it's a normal day. And that way, then things can start, you know, the sort of the attribution or discovery of something that doesn't seem normal stands out a little bit more once you can start going back to that baseline and saying that's not normal for a typical day of business or at least understand why something doesn't look normal because it could be a, an intruder or it could just be uh, something else going on but that's a business related issue which still has value okay um Almost last is file integrity monitoring. Again, um, <laughs> we did a very large incident where an update from a vendor had been uh, manipulated and every, all the information for that particular application was going to a malicious website. They weren't monitoring, none of the clients were monitoring their web servers except for one who actually notified the vendor, but nobody was monitoring it. The actual company issuing the update never tested the code. They never made sure there was a clean and secure chain of custody from their last change all the way through to the clients. Okay. We see parameter attacks on web servers and on forms. We see broken, I know this is technical, but broken object level authorization. But where did all this come from? The, re, the malicious remote procedure calls against internal infrastructure services. It came from no validation. Base, we, we, we've been accustomed to validating our data and our forms and our app servers when data comes into them and updates are made from the concept of SQL injection. Well, that's not all that can happen. I could not only put a SQL injection in, but let's say I got a data or a form that I know is going to be loaded into your database. What if I put a malicious DLL in there instead or a call out in there? That happens a lot. 
and and this is this is basic integrity monitoring again production and non-production moves lack of logging and monitoring and competing forces for business over blank over anything over let's get that form right let's get the the image correct let's make sure we're pulling the images down from a qualified source so best practice here test and validate when we're in this really fast get it to production agile environment where everything needs to come in short sprints it needs to get out there really really quickly what's lost is testing what's lost is making sure that test environment is protected the same way you would secure your production environment and basically monitoring those calls from those APIs monitoring those uh, making sure nothing bad is actually coming out of your test environment And then last but not necessarily least is almost all the times with the largest data breaches we have dealt with and the most sophisticated companies that have the resources as they never really practiced a real procedure to remediate. So they missed all the back doors. When they do go in, they soil the evidence, they soil the data. They do not talk in out of band by the way. And so the, the, the emails, the chats, and the texts that are going back and forth between engineers is, is, is worthwhile of a Dilbert cartoon because they just come right out and say it in publicly disclosed emails and comments. Okay. And by the way, a lot of the stuff has happened when we go in and we do this, we find out that the entity was tapped. They knew they were attacked. Okay. And now they didn't do anything about it because they didn't realize that bad that data was actually taken because that is our threshold for determining whether we need to to announce something and actually do something. Okay, so what happens? They get attacked multiple times. So we go back in there. We find multiple threat actor personalities, not just the one where the breach was found, but multiple. We often we use the term in our in our company that they just they didn't just have one virus. They were a petri dish. Of basically, a, a, you know, every single sickness you could ever have, um, because everybody was taking advantage of it. Once an advanced threat actor gets into you, uh, a lot of times when they're done or they establish their back doors, they may just sell that access in a darknet forum to somebody else. Okay, so basically, the 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 reason this happens is they didn't have an adequate testing of a plan, or they didn't have a plan at all. We have, we walk, we personally walk into um, tabletop, functional tabletop exercises and we put up scenarios and, and we'll have people, including executives on there saying, yeah, that can't happen. That would never happen in our environment. We're not going to do that scenario. That doesn't apply to us. We're perfect. You know, um, overconfidence in the system is, is pretty much the, when the bell tolls. Okay. Uh, and also, like I said, in this fast CICD environment of pushing code, either by your vendors, yourself, or anything else, you've got this culture of agility without always retaining that balance of quality and security. We want to get this code out there to disrupt the market with our new social media platform. We'll fix the problems later. And again, if we're seeing with all this and every single uh, scenario we've come up with, is that doing the minimum compliance and security and only do the minimum according to not the spirit of the standard or the regulatory requirement, but actually what it really is trying to 
to tell you to do and you do it right the first time, usually don't have these issues. Okay, so um, questions? We're, we're, we went through a lot really, really quickly, I get it. You did, thank you, Mary and Chris. You, you did go through quite a bit, and uh, back to basics indeed, because there, uh, and, and basics plus, I'd say, because there's quite a bit of advanced material that you covered. So yeah, I have a number of questions. Uh, several have come in uh, in Q&A and in chat, but I'm gonna take uh, moderators' uh, uh, advantage here and uh, raise mine, because you, you, particularly, you talked about some of the issues that are the security teams being potentially in conflict with, uh, with other, other realms within or different verticals within an enterprise. And I want to talk about that. But moreover, uh, I want to just pick up on one thing in particular, which is there, I think there's increasing complexity in many of the systems that you've described. And so, you know, where uh, you've, you've, hit, you've hit home a few times where you've said, you know, people have ignored signs or they've uh, chose to sort of paper over uh, one, of, one, more, one or more signals. I think you know one of the challenges must be for them uh, that there is there's just a lot of information coming in. How do you deal with that is, is an open question. And uh, you know we've all probably seen uh, a car where someone has decided to ignore the uh, warning lights or the uh, you know it's time to go get your car inspected. I remember I saw someone who put a piece of duct tape over there, so they never even had to think about it. That's the simple end of the spectrum in comparison to what you're talking about, which is. You know, if you're a large enterprise and you've got uh, multiple data points uh, coming in, not not to uh, you know get, get, let them off too lightly, but there's a lot of information. So what what are they supposed to do about it, short of ignoring? Okay, so you know it, the amazing thing is is um, it's not like you've got to have a team of fifty people researching every single one of them. They're yeah. all connected. Um, and, and, the, and the excuse of, and I use the term excuse uh, on purpose, of our systems are very complex. How are we supposed to do that? Every time we've gone into any new technology, it's complex. Yeah. You know, would you put a piece of furniture in your house that you didn't know was there? I, it just, would you install an outlet that when you're building your house that you didn't document on the architecture diagram? Okay. Uh, it's it's really is that simple. Yes, the systems are complex, but that should make you more diligent uh, than less. Um, and as far as the noise, here's the beauty of it. If you actually go in and research some of these alerts, you find out so much about your system, what's really running, what isn't running, et cetera, and you make a very educated decision to say that that is a false positive or something that you need. Um, what happens is, is they turn these things on, they turn every single alert on and they freeze and they don't want to see it anymore. Um, and that's incredibly dangerous. Uh, but I will say this, um, in many of the, um, incidents that we have handled after the fact, that is a common excuse. Oh my gosh, there's so much noise. Well, there's so much noise when you're turning on every single login alert, et cetera. But when you look at your system logs, it rarely shows an error, especially a critical error. And when they do, that's serious. It's not just minor, it's usually serious. There's a reason for that error. Um, for instance, Emetet um, attacks uh, almost always show 
uh, a medium to a critical error, which is very unusual in the system log of somebody trying to execute a service in your Microsoft system, a service that's got a bizarre name that looks like a hash. You couldn't miss that if you were actually looking at the logs. So why are we only looking at security logs? You know, that's what a SIM does. It correlates those logs together and you're so much better, better off. And by the way, when those things learn, sometimes they turn off the false positives for you, uh, particularly after you've let it run for a while. Um, I, I, I um, you know, and, and again, when we're giving examples here, we're not giving examples, uh, although we have seen some startups be victims of this and be a little over aggressive, um, have a lot of hubris with what they were doing and don't think anybody would attack them. But when we're giving some of these other examples, we're talking about well-established companies that have spent a ton of money on these monitoring systems, and they simply don't do the basics. So, so no system, no, no sympathy for complexity as a as an excuse. It sounds like no, no, we, you no, know, as a matter of fact, <laughs> we hear that all the time. Yeah, no, that makes perfect perfect sense to me too. Uh, yeah, I'll I'll say though. You know, for the some of the startups that I've worked with, or some of the smaller companies, I mean, it may be a little different, right? That there's got to be, you know, and and there the trade-offs always seem to be, you know, getting spun up to production and uh, you know sloppy with basics. They don't really care, you know, in the same way. What would you say to them? What would you say to the startup? Uh, you know, who you know, clearly should be doing basics because you could lose everything, uh, you know, in a relatively short period of time, and uh, there's certainly attractive targets too. So, what's your what's your advice to the smaller? Well it's, you know what, it, you know, when we're auditing or securing a smaller company, it's usually 10 times easier because their assets are known. They have their, they have much less overall organizational complexity. So if they just start off doing things right, instead of applying the security requirements as just a check the box requirements, it's a facade layer over the top. It's so much easier just to start off with good habits right off the bat. Um, and it's when they don't start off with the good habits and then you come back while they're looking for, let's say, another series of funding and they need to get it. That is not the right time to do it. Um, and you also need to have buy-in. You need to have a security culture from the start. And I'm not talking about everyone knowing security and, you know, walking on eggshells and things like that. I'm talking about basic stuff. Network segmentation. Build it out correctly the first time. Okay, when you do deploy, because everyone has to have it now, some form of logging and monitoring, don't just log and monitor the stuff that you put into production. That's not where, that's not their first stop. That, that it may be a script kitty's first stop and, uh, you know, to try and just hammer on something they think is going to be a quick win. But, you know, the, even the medium level sophistication hackers are going to go after your test and development systems, your non-prod. That's where they start. That is because then they can learn all about you. They can learn your code. They learn all of your, you know, issues and where they can inject and they can maybe get lucky by you promoting something to prod. But either way, they're that much more knowledge about you. And, and what we see is just people, particularly in startups, throwing non-production systems to the wind because they're trying to develop very, very quickly. And then when they move up in production, that's when they start opening the back doors of production because they've actually uh, promoted bugs and functional um, issues into production. And they need to now take those same engineers 
that were working on uh, the, the test systems and they start opening up production just like tests to be able to fix it very quickly. Sure. And, you know, the irony of that is, is that in a, in one system that, that I had deployed, um, uh, they really didn't want to turn logging monitoring. I didn't understand why they needed it, blah, 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 blah. Well, then when they did have somebody put something that was, um, um, a, uh, an unauthorized change into product, and it was a, it was a valid employee. It was not a hacker. They were able to use those same system, uh, SIM that I had deployed in order to find the problem in under five minutes and stop it and, and fix it. So these systems are not just for security. When you're monitoring and logging your network track, you're also looking for efficiencies. You're looking for uh, improving response times, it, it, you know, um, you know, increasing stickiness of your customers to your website, et cetera. They're used for everything. This is not us versus them. And, and if they grow up together and come in together, Oh my gosh, the, the money saving, uh, the faster loads to production are incredible. And I've seen companies that have done it right. And it's, it's very impressive. And, 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 uh, you know, they're not going to brag about what they did because they don't want to like show the world what they did because they don't want to be an attack target, but, uh, it's really impressive and it works and it's not, ex it's actually less expensive. Right. Yeah, no, that's those are absolutely those are great points. So let, let me quickly, uh, Mary and, and Chris, get to a couple of the different Q and A questions because uh, zero trust raised its head. Uh, we didn't we didn't really discuss zero trust here, and I, I know that's well beyond the basics, but it's such a, a critical issue that I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on, on do clients, in your estimation, understand zero trust? It's a great question that's come in, and is it being uh, discussed more in some of the environments that you work in? And then. Uh, a secondary question really moves into the political end of the spectrum, which is on supply chain security and on the colonial pipeline. And are we seeing improvements and maybe a little bit early uh, from uh, Biden's executive order to claim any improvements? But nonetheless, uh, those are those are two questions that came in. I'd like to just hear your thoughts on it in the remaining time that we have. So, well, I'm going to say real quick, and then I'm going to hand it over to Chris, because I know we've seen this quite a bit. Um, Log4j supply chain. I mean, I know it's a it's a topic that's talked about a lot, you know, but basically whenever you have to go in and research where it is that you could have been vulnerable, are you keeping that documentation? <laughs> I've seen it thrown out the door already. Uh, keep that, you learned about your environment, you learn what's going on, how are you gonna use that to improve it? And how are you gonna use that to create a better, uh, a better culture moving forward to control that supply chain so you know what's out there? And then also, are you paying attention to those? So, so once you get the supply chain, stick your alerts on and make sure you're being told when your supply chain partners and service providers are being, are being attacked in any way, shape or form. Um, it's, it's not a hard thing to do. It's harder to constantly reinvent the wheel. Um, with the, um, so that was the supply chain issue. As far as zero trust, that is network segmentation. You set up gateways. What happens when you go into the cloud is there's uh, an implicit trust relationship between every, you know, you set up a peer relationship, no matter who goes backwards and forwards, you've got an implicit trust relationship in that VNet. That is not necessary and it is and should not be implemented that way. It's fast, it's easy, but it's not right. And, and eventually what happens is, is you have a hard time tracing not only your own activities and how changes, unauthorized changes were made, even if they were made with good intent, but fast, 
but you also can't trace a, a threat actor going through there. There's extreme zero trust and there's common sense zero trust. And I, I, I we've rarely seen, uh, particularly on the startups and middle ground people, actually, I take that back. In large Fortune 50 firms, we have seen minimal implementation and zero trust, even the common sense version on an enterprise level. They really only try to implement it in the areas they think are going to be most attractive to a threat actor because of the data that it holds or the processes that it's that they're executing. And complexity again raises his head. So, so uh, Mary and, and Chris, Chris, I'm going to give you uh, a few seconds and then back to Mary for the last word, and uh, then we'll try and end on time. So, Chris, any uh, any thoughts on those questions? I think I think with, without going down a rabbit hole and creating more, um, I think the complexity is a is a big issue. We're talking about whether you're talking about supply chain or whatever. Um, Every security every security plan, every security scan or audit is a point in time. So the other key component to recognize is that it's at that point in time, that's what you look like. So as, as complexity grows or changes, that point in time becomes irrelevant. So you have to constantly stay on top of what's going on in your environment. So continual, like I saw someone say about um, automated baseline, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You keep understanding what is normal and as you grow in complexity or add users or add systems or, or acquire companies or what have you you have to stay you have to keep pace with that that's that's part of the cost of growth and if you can do that you have a better chance of defending sort of the perimeter and then what's going on inside the company and it doesn't matter if you're you know at the government level or if you're at the at the startup level that's that's the reality right Great, great points, Chris. So thanks so much. Mary, back to you, and then uh, we'll, we'll end off. Last thought. I just, I just want to make one comment. We've seen a tremendous amount of damage in cloud environments when people just RDP hop. So port 3389, I'm going to remote desktop, basically open up that port and hop between different VNets, hop between different VMs and all that because it's easy. And because, by the way, now that I'm in my own cloud environment, now that I'm in my own AWS instance, now that I'm in my own Azure portal, what can happen? Yeah, the false sense of security. That, and, uh, and that, by the way, that alone, that that blind trust between services and that opening to make it easy to traverse your own environment has uh, actually been one of the root causes is, uh, uh, you know, along with one deprecated um, WAF device that was never taken out of service that was also implicitly trusted uh, was the cause of one of the large, the world's largest data breaches you're never gonna hear about. There you go. On that, on that note, well, thank you so much, Mary and Chris. So thanks again. Uh, look forward to seeing you all uh, in the not too distant future. Thanks, Mary and Chris. Bye-bye.